the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yeah, but will the Easter Bunny be on the ticket? Did you hear that the big guy told Barack Obama that he plans to run for re-election in 2024? That's the story going around today. But you know what else has been going around for the last day or two? Maybe you've seen the video of the big guy being escorted around the White House uh, Easter egg hunt on Sunday by the Easter Bunny. At one point, Joe started to answer a question about Pakistan and Afghanistan, and the Easter Bunny stepped in and ushered him away from the group he was talking to. At another point, he was headed for the crowd behind the rope line, and the bunny stepped in and blocked him and moved him out of there. And after the event was over and he thanked everybody for coming, he was just standing up there and you could you could hear Jill telling him to wave, which is what everybody else on the stage was doing. So then Joe waved. It was pretty pathetic. Of course, Joe's handlers had an explanation for all of it, just as they had an explanation for Joe reaching out to shake hands with nobody after finishing a speech a few days ago. And they had an explanation for why Joe seemed to be having trouble getting anybody to notice. Remember when Obama dropped by the White House a little while ago? Then they had an explanation for why there were people claiming he pooped his pants at the Vatican. And don't forget when they had to clarify what he really meant when he said a small incursion into Ukraine by Vladimir Vladimir Putin would be okay. And then when he told the troops in Poland that they'd be surprised at what they saw when they went into Ukraine, they... They explained that one away, too. So is there anybody with a brain who can look at this guy and think that he could still be president three months from now, much less three years from now? Every day there are fewer and fewer people in the country who think he's actually in charge of anything. But I would bet on the Easter Bunny running in 2024 before I'd bet on the big guy. That's a, that's a, nice, that's a nice ticket. Biden Bunny. The Biden Bunny ticket. I got to get – I could just make some bumper stickers. Anyway, anyway meanwhile uh, – Did you hear that you no longer have to wear a mask on an airplane? Well, when we come back, we're going to talk to the author of a book. It's called Unmasked, The Global Failure of Mask Mandates. And you'll see how dumb it was to torture travelers for the last two and a half years. And in our second half hour, some stats on how much differently the media treats stories about violent crime, depending on whether the suspect is black or white. Stick around. of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule changing the world one life at a time this product is life-changing and i tell everyone what a blessing down to nature fruits and vegetables is it's amazing absolutely phenomenal i'm telling you right now this is an amazing thing 30 days after taking this everything is, is perfect i could not be more happy what a blessing So good job, down to nature. Good job. Get a wide variety of all your daily recommended servings of whole fruits and vegetables without having to leave your home. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Call 800-246-8751. That's 800-246-8751. Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code balance. Before Bamboo HR, <laughs> I feel like crying just thinking about it. We were still handling everything via paper and we literally had paper stacked. It was all in spreadsheets and like folders. From the moment I started using it, I felt calmer. As soon as we started using the Bamboo like onboarding checklist, I mean, <laughs> it was extremely easy. Headcount, turnover, uh, years of service. Like there's just so many different reports that I use at different points in time. I'm like totally set free to focus on on the people, to focus on development, to focus on team dynamics. It's freeing me up to do more of the stuff that actually matters in HR, which is interacting with people.
people, learning from them, and then building stuff for them. Everything is in this one place. I can't even imagine what it would be like without Bamboo HR. We're Bamboo HR, and we'd love to set you free to do great work. Come try our award-winning all-in-one HR software for free with no strings attached. Visit BambooHR.com slash HR for this free trial offer. That's BambooHR.com slash HR. I endorsed another person today, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz. President Trump endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz for Senate. Why? Because President Trump knows who the real conservative is who's going to shake up Washington. It's not David McCormick. The liberal pro-Biden, pro-China Wall Street insider, David McCormick praised Biden, is funded by Democrats, and admits he was never a Trump supporter, all while telling his friends back on Wall Street that his so-called conservative principles are just an act. President Trump knows the real conservative is Dr. Oz. Trump calls Dr. Mehmet Oz smart, tough, and someone who will never let us down. I endorsed another person today, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz. Endorsed by Trump, the conservative fighter Pennsylvania needs Dr. Oz for U.S. Senate. I'm Dr. Mehmet Oz. I candidate for U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. Paid for by Dr. Oz for Senate. This view was worth a hike. Right? And it's a good way to stay on top of my health. Yes. I'm Cologuard, a prescription colon cancer screening option for people 45 plus at average risk. Have you screened for colon cancer? Not yet. Don't wait. It's more treatable when caught in early stages. Tell me more. Cologuard is non-invasive and it's used at home. It detects altered DNA in your stool to find 92% of colon cancers. 92%? Yep, even those in early stages. This was seen in a clinical study with patients 50 and older. Any positive result should be followed by a diagnostic colonoscopy. False positive and negative results may occur. Cologuard is not a replacement for colonoscopy in high-risk patients. Do not use if you have had adenomas, have inflammatory bowel disease and certain hereditary syndromes, or a personal or family history of colon cancer. Most insured patients pay zero dollars. Ask your provider or an online prescriber if Cologuard is right for you. Or visit Cologuard.com. I'm in. The John Steigerwall Show. AM 1250, The Answer. Well, I was celebrating in airports and on planes yesterday when a judge in Florida overturned the uh, mask mandate uh, that uh, President Biden had uh, sent out uh, as courtesy of the CDC, I guess. And it seems as though the response from about 90 percent of the people on the planet has been, what took so long? That's not based on a scientific study that 90 percent of the people felt that way. But Ian Miller did a scientific study on masks and wrote a book about it. And it's called Unmasked, the Global Failure of Mask Mandates. And Ian joins us now. Thanks for being here, Ian. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, let's start with airports and airplanes. Uh, were any lives saved by making people wear, including babies, uh, wear masks for almost two and a half years? <laughs> I, I'm very confident that the answer is, is no, that there were no lives saved by uh, wearing masks on airplanes. And um, I, I wrote a, a, an article about this essentially where, you know, you can show when the mask order came into place and that people defending it were saying it was to reduce broader community transmission. And then, of course, we break every record last winter with mask mandates on planes still in place. So I think it's it's very obvious that the uh, it was a completely useless policy that, as you say, should have been gone a long time ago. Yeah, and there's, I, this, uh, I didn't see this until just a few minutes ago. Valerie Jarrett, the uh, former Barack Obama uh, advisor, has a tweet out with her picture, and she's wearing a mask. And it says, wearing my mask no matter what non-scientists tell me I can do. So what I did, I'm not, I don't know if she'll see what I tweeted back, but I told her to read your book. Uh, and I said you were going to be on the show today. So what would she find in your book to make her feel stupid for wearing a mask? <laughs> well, there's a lot in there, I think, yeah. that would uh, kind of debunk that argument. Um it, you know, the idea was generally to try to tell the story of how early on all the evidence on mask wearing suggested it wouldn't be effective. And then with no yeah. new evidence whatsoever, all these politicians and experts flip-flopped and said everybody needs to wear a mask. And then it's to show the results afterwards. And you, know, you can compare locations with and without mandates, and the, the areas without mandates often do better than those with mandates. Uh, you can look at different locations and show how the mask mandate would come into, a, into place, and then the numbers would skyrocket shortly afterwards, and you can even look at compliance. Um, it's, it's a pretty broad look, and, and a lot of examples, too, of, of states and countries where a media report would say, oh, well, 
you know, this area is doing well now because of all their mask wearing. And then just a couple of weeks later, they've broken every previous record and are leading the world in, in new cases at that time. Yeah. Um, so let's try to kind of be a broad overview of all of that information. Yeah, well, what was the evidence? The, uh, what evidence was used to determine that masks were a good idea in the beginning? I don't think there was any evidence used. I think they just basically went and, and saw what was happening in, in what South Korea and Japan. They thought that they were doing well because of masking and assumed that, well, if it's working there, maybe it might work for us, too. Uh, because literally, and this is one of the key things I found in, in researching the book, was end of March of 2020, Dr. Fauci was sent an email from one of the top employees at NIH saying, we reviewed all the randomized controlled trials on masking, and all of it suggested that masks wouldn't work. And then just literally three days later, Fauci and the CDC come out and say everybody should wear a cloth mask. So, I mean, obviously there was no new evidence that, that just randomly popped up in, in three days at the end of March and into early April. Um, so I don't think they really looked at any actual evidence to suggest that mask wearing would make a difference. I think it was it was kind of a, a wishful thinking. Yeah, Fauci's on on uh uh, he's he's on video saying uh, I think it was on sixty minutes that, that oh no people you don't have to wear a mask that's uh, that doesn't work for viruses you don't have to do that but he did a total uh, about face as you said on that issue has he ever given any good reason for changing from no masks needed to let's wear two which is where he was at one point yeah I I don't think he's ever given a good explanation I think that what he tried to say was that it was some kind of noble lie to protect supply for healthcare workers. But I think there's there's two things there that don't stand up to scrutiny, one of which, and I, I cover this in the book, privately he was telling people at the same time, like you said in 60 Minutes, you don't need to wear a mask. And he was telling people in their own, and, you know, people were asking him for advice, and he would tell them, you don't need to wear a mask. So there's no worry about supply for one individual person in February of 2020 to wear a mask. He just knew they didn't work. Uh, the other explanation was that, you know, protecting supply for healthcare workers, but that doesn't make sense. When you consider the healthcare workers, we're not going to be wearing a cloth mask most of the time, if, if at all possible. You know that the general public wearing cloth masks was not really going to impact the supply of N95s to hospitals. Um, so I think it was just kind of a, a post hoc justification for him changing his mind, but it's it's not a real explanation. I think it's just it was an excuse. Yeah, and he's on he, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he admitted that the lockouts were. Uh, a lockout is how you get people to get vaccinated. That's what he said. Uh, and I'm wondering if that, that he, he decided that the masks, making people miserable by wearing masks early on, would convince them to get vac- vaccinated. And he was actually convinced that the vaccine, the vaccine was going to slow the virus, which, of course, it didn't do. Uh, so do you think there was some of that in there, maybe, that uh, the mask thing was just, well, look, we got to, this is our way of just making people miserable and and uh, goading them into uh, getting vaccinated. Uh, certainly could have been. I think that it's it all is it is all connected. I think it was part of a, a reminder to, to tell people, oh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You need to be taking this seriously. You should be scared. You should be miserable. Um, you know, and he's he's basically repeatedly said that he uses coercive language to get people to do what he wants. Um, I don't think that that's a, a good public health communication strategy from all the conversations I've had with public health experts and other doctors and medical professionals. And I, I think, but it, it's, I think you're definitely onto something there that he probably was using uh, all these tools to try to increase the vaccination uptake. And uh, it, that, that his comments made no sense because it's just, it's reliant on vaccines becoming available in such a short period of time, which he was saying they weren't going to be available that quickly. He was very- about it being rolled out within less than a year after COVID really kind of came to the U.S. So I think it's uh, it's very disingenuous, as most of his comments are, and again, shows that he's kind of a manipulative person who wants to control people's behavior. You wonder what it's like for a person who's a scientist. Maybe it's good for his ego to see that he can go on CNN or MSNBC or show up on Meet the Press and say everybody should wear a mask. And then he gets to go outside and look and see everybody walking around wearing a mask because he told them to. Uh, it's just, it's sick. And he, and he doesn't look like he's ever going to be held accountable for anything. Yeah, absolutely. It's really depressing that he's kind of getting away with this. And, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, with the current administration, obviously, they're never going to do any kind of investigation into his methods or, or how he 
handled this and, and what he was telling people and, and the, uh, you know, the admitted that he's admitted that he's lied and all the lies that he's told, uh, it doesn't seem like there's ever going to be any accountability for that. And if a new administration comes in that will investigate him, I'm sure he'll just resign and retire. Um, but it is, uh, it's very, it is a very big problem. I think that these, uh, these public health authorities have realized that they have immense power if they can get people scared and, and like you say, to get everybody to do what they want and follow their advice, if they just increase the fear and ramp up the panic to people, people will listen. And, you know, I think that's a very dangerous lesson that they've learned and that we have to combat going forward. We're talking to Ian Miller. His book is Unmasked, the global failure of mask, mask mandates. Um, so uh, uh, Fauci aside was in general, was the dissemination of misinformation uh, purposeful around the world, do you think? Uh, I think there there was some some form of pers- uh, of purposeful misinformation being spread. Yeah, I think a lot of health authorities kind of realized that masks weren't going to do very much, but they became a, a kind of useful tool to get to get people to comply with the entire broader set of COVID restrictions. That you know, I personally was was completely surprised that people were willing to put up with for so long. You know, I, I can't believe people when you look back now. Oh, we're just going to close every single business in the country that's not, you know, Walmart or Target or big box companies for for indefinite amounts of time in some parts of the country. Um, you know, and I think they kind of realized that they could use all of these tools in the toolbox to uh, to get people to do what they wanted. Um, and I think it was it was a kind of a purposeful tool that they they had in their in their set to try and uh, again manipulate people's behavior to do exactly what they wanted. And I think, you know, a lot, you can go back and look at all the times the CDC director has said just completely ludicrous things about like how vaccinated people were not going to get COVID, were not going to spread COVID at all. Now, there was no evidence to suggest that that was the case, but she just kind of ran with that on purpose, I think, to increase uptake of the vaccine, of the vaccines and also to try to influence policy, uh, which is what we saw that we, you know, these exclusionary policies to, to have vaccine passports. I think they were supportive of those kinds of things. And now there were people out there working on their their fourth shot, their third booster. Um, so, what in your research was there one or two countries that you can point to that got it right? Well, I think the best example is probably Sweden. Um, you know, not that they did everything right; they they have had you know COVID mortality rates that are fairly high, but they're they're when you compare them to the rest of Europe, they're near the bottom. They've done much better than than the European average. Um, and, you know, compared to the rest of the world, they're in like around 60th in the world in death rate, which is completely, you know, average in, around the rest of the world. Um, and they did that with the minimal disruption to normal life, which is essentially, and again, this was all the research I did, that was essentially all the pre-COVID pandemic planning guidance was to say you should try to disrupt life as, as uh, minimal, keep that disruption as minimal as possible, maintain normalcy. Sweden tried to do that. You know, they never mandated masks in any meaningful way. You know, compliance never was really very high. Uh, they kept schools open. They had a lot of businesses open with some, some minor restrictions. But in general, their results were, were excellent, you know, compared to the rest of the world. Much better than, obviously, the United States, much better than the United Kingdom, for example, that tried to follow all these, these very strict uh, restrictions and mask mandates everywhere. Um, so I think that's, that's probably the best example. You know, Florida is in the U.S., obviously not a country, but... Uh, you know, they've really, Ron DeSantis did an amazing job of listening to actual experts and listening to the guidance and following the advice and following the actual science. And the results were, were fine, especially after you adjust for age. You know, they were completely unexceptional right in the middle of the country and about the same as California. So I think when you, when you, and that's one of the things goals of the book as well, is to try to compare these locations and show there's no meaningful difference based off of how strict your policies were. Well, the CDC, as recently as two months ago, um, released a study And the conclusion was, and this is a quote, consistent use of a face mask or respirator in indoor public settings was associated with lower odds of a positive SARS-CoV-2 test result. Use of respirators with higher filtration capacity was associated with the most protection compared with no mask use, unquote. Where did they go wrong and how, uh, how much fault did you find with their research and, and their and their conclusion to the research. Yeah, one of the biggest disasters of that that specific study was that the results for cloth masking was not statistically significant. Um, so what they did is they they 
publicize this result, knowing that people in the media would pick it up and that people would, you know, jump all over and say, look, masks have been working the whole time when one of the results was not even statistically significant in the first place. So that should never have been released. It should have been just tossed out because it's, it's not an important uh, conclusion. And the other problems was that the sample sizes were just absurd and it was based off of uh, self-reporting. So it was, they were calling people and saying, did you always wear a mask? And that was it. There was no, you know, actual study follow-up of them following people or, or making sure they were actually complying. It was just a, a phone study um, among other, many other problems, like I said, with the sample sizes. Um, so I, you know, I, it's, again, it's a, it's a repeated example. The CDC's done this over and over again, where they try to justify their policy with really, really poor research. Um, and instead of, you know, academics and, and medical experts on Twitter or any other areas doing what I'm doing and trying to criticize it and show that this information can't be relied upon, uh, they just repeat it because they know it's going to get media headlines and kind of increase people wearing masks, which is what they want, which, again, kind of ties back into the whole thing of manipulating behavior through, through poor scientific uh, communication. Uh, the author of uh, Unmasked, The Global Failure of Mask Mandates, Ian Miller, is with us right now. So could they have released this information like, uh, you know, the the, um, the 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 faulty use of statistics, the uh, using just invalid statistics? Could they have released information like this without knowing it was BS, that it was statistically insignificant? Oh, I think that they they kind of purposefully did this. Um, I, you know, I think that the, the CDC's like MMWR releases, which is what this was part of, uh, specifically on their website, they'll say that it's meant to kind of promote CDC policy. Um, you know, I don't know if there has been research that done that they haven't published that shows the opposite result, you know, or shows that it didn't matter. I don't think they would ever even let it see the light of day, to be honest with you. I think they specifically only are going to um, release, uh, you know, really poorly conducted studies like this um, to try to increase their, their compliance or promote their policies. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if they're, you know, how we get them back to intellectual honesty, but releasing this one was, was really, really misleading. And I think it did a lot of damage um, because, and I think it's also, you know, important that to highlight in this one, that the, the vast majority of people who tested positive in their examination were wearing masks. <laughs> it was just after they did these adjustments and, you know, had a model to kind of estimate how effective masks were that they got the result they wanted. Uh, so yeah, it's a very, very disingenuous piece of release by them. The thing about it, Ian, is that it wasn't like this happened in uh, Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania or even Florida. It's worldwide. The entire world yeah. was sucked into this. Yeah, and I try to cover that in the book uh, to some extent, and you know, I definitely would like to do more of it going forward because there's it really is just a, a global tale at this point that a lot of. Uh, People just kind of fell in line, and and you know the scientific consensus became un, something you could not criticize, and, and mass became part of that. Um, and I think it's it's a really destructive story that we're going to be dealing with for a very long time. And anyway, Philadelphia just brought back their mass mandate. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. this is a an an issue that we're going to keep seeing crop up where uh, states and cities and, and jurisdictions that have totally bought into this are, are going to keep bringing it back. And, you know, I don't know how it ever ends in certain countries like South Korea, Japan. I don't know when they ever end the mass mandates there. Yeah. And, and would it be an exaggeration, Ian, to say that it was all a scam and that it led to it just what be, what became theater of the absurd with the president of the United States running around with a mask and then pulling it down to talk to somebody and putting it back on and just it just became so ridiculous. Could you would you be able yeah. to? Would you safely say that it was a a worldwide scam, the whole mask thing? I, yeah, I think that that's fair to say. I think it was, and in a lot of ways, it's that's a good word for it because it was predicated on on nothing really, and and trying to convince. It was more predicated on trying to coerce behavior than it was any scientific evidence, and, and that's kind of like a snake oil thing. You know, that's it, it's not. That's not how we're supposed to make decisions in the modern world. It's supposed to be evidence-based and reason-based, and that's the exact opposite of what was done here. And, you know, it, it's really unfortunate because I think so many people have now, it's now become part of their identity that they believe masks work. Uh, I always call it the believe in science crowd, you know, with those yard signs in front of their houses saying, in this house we believe in science. Well, you know, I think that masks have become kind of wrapped up in, in that identity 
um, based off of really nothing. And, and people have been very misled, and it's, uh, it's hard to see how they ever kind of recover from it. I mean, the reactions to this, the airplane thing have just been completely deranged with people losing their minds and, and saying it's going to kill people. And, you know, we, we've gone through this before, and I cover this in the book. When Texas lifted their mask mandate in March of 2021, everybody lost their minds, and then cases went down for months afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I think it is really a scam is a good word for it in a lot of ways, unfortunately. It's, it's very depressing. Well, I'm out of time, Ian. I appreciate you coming on. The, uh, the book is Unmasked, The Global Failure of Mask Mandates. And if you were one of the people, I'm talking to the audience now, if you were one of the people who thought it was all stupid, read Ian's book and you'll find out you were right and they were wrong. Thanks for coming on, Ian. Thank you for having me. Okay, we'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Bob Agnew in Washington. Russian forces have attacked along a broad front in eastern Ukraine as part of a full-scale ground offensive to take control of the country's eastern industrial heartland. Military analyst Justin Crump. Yeah, my inclination at the moment is to think they're going to start to try and isolate individual units. They're not going to go for this big sweeping maneuver because Ukraine showed that they can then go after their supply lines. They can use guerrilla warfare against them. I think they're going to just keep taking chunks of, of cities and towns in the Donbass, and that's close to what they've done in Mariupol. It's just on a much bigger scale. This latest offensive began along a 300-mile front line. Democrats on Capitol Hill are fearing a deluge of migrants at the southern border this summer and pressuring President Biden to back off his decision to lift the Trump-era Title 42 order next month. This is SRN News. I'm about to compare a pepper shaker to a cash-out refinance. Hang with me. You know when you're at a restaurant and they ask, would you like some fresh ground pepper? And then they crank that giant tube, but almost nothing comes out? For me, only a certain amount of time is socially acceptable to wait. I know that getting that pepper out might make my life better, but it just seems too impossible. And that's what we hear people say about the cash-out refinance. People realize that the value of their home has gone up like hot pepper the last few years, leaving all this extra money sitting inside their home. But is it too hard to get out? It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage. If you're interested in cashing out the extra pepper in your home, we're good at doing all the work while you just sit back and relax. And often, your mortgage payment and years in the loan will stay the same. If you'd like to hear about your options, we are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Metal Park Road, Melbourne, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to Animalist Consumer Access. Federal Corporate Animalist Number 1330. Equal housing lender. Licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Utah. Mike Gallagher can't wait until November. Can you imagine a United States Congresswoman bellyaching about a handful of Christians singing on a plane? I am so sick of these people on the left with their hateful, bitter, miserable, unhappy lives trying to make everybody else unhappy, too. And you should be, too. November 8th is coming. The Mike Gallagher Show. Weekdays at 9, right before Dennis Prager at noon on AM 1250. The answer. Is your school a true partner in your child's education? They should be. Pittsburgh's Christian schools agree. If you're looking for a safe environment where kids can learn, challenge, and grow with highly qualified teachers who are not only caring but accessible, where academic excellence goes hand-in-hand with character development, consider Christian education. Right now, local Christian schools are offering half-price tuitions for first-time enrollees, like Portersville Christian School in Portersville, PA. Visit theanswerpgh.com slash tuitions. This is John Stargerwald. You know, I used to think that all towels are pretty much the same, but I found out with my pillow towels, that's not the case. Towels just don't seem to dry anymore. They feel soft and lotiony in the storage, but you get them home and they don't absorb. Well, Mike Lindell at My Pillow found out that around 2006, towels changed forever. They started importing them and adding softeners and other things to the cotton that made them feel good, but they didn't work. He found the best towel company right here in the USA, and they have proprietary technology to create towels that feel soft but actually work. They're all made with USA cotton. They come with the MyPillow 60-day money-back guarantee. You can get a six-piece set, two bath, two hand towels, and two washcloths made with USA cotton, soft and absorbent, regularly $109.99, now $39.99. Just go to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials, get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the towels. Enter promo code STAG or call 800-716-8087 for these great radio specials. AM 1250 and FM 92.5. 
The Answer. WPGP Pittsburgh. W223CS Pittsburgh. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on The Answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in, iHeart, or Odyssey. Stuck in traffic? We've got The Answer. On outbound 51, we're backed up. Now there's an accident at Edgebrook Avenue, back up from Woodruff Street. Now there's also delays Parkway West, inbound Green Tree to the Fort Pitt Bridge, outbound Heavy Banksville Road to Carnegie, Parkway East tying up outbound, Glenwood up to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel, inbound the usual volume downtown 2nd Avenue to the Fort Pitt Bridge. That's a look at traffic. I'm Jenny Robinson. AM 1250, The Answer. Weather. Breezy this evening, otherwise partly cloudy and cold tonight. We'll see a nighttime low of 29. There will be a freeze. Tomorrow, some sunshine, then turning cloudy with a high of 55. Considerable cloudiness tomorrow night with a low of 48. Thursday will be breezy in the morning with a couple of showers. Otherwise, mostly cloudy skies prevail. We'll see a high Thursday of 62. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm Drew Shannon. This is the John Stackerwalt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The Answer. Well, remember the mass shooting in the New York subway last week. Does it seem to you that it, I don't know, maybe generated less outrage and less coverage than it would have gotten if the shooter had been white? And if so, does uh, thinking that maybe that make you racist? Actually, it doesn't. It makes you observant. Charles Fain Lehman has proof of that at the Washington Free Beacon, and he joins us now. Charles, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, Let's start with Frank James, the Brooklyn subway shooter. What did you find uh, in the coverage of that story? Yeah, well, and so so obviously, if you if you read around a little bit, you discovered he's uh, he's a peculiar character. Uh, James is an avowed black nationalist, uh, and he's really he's an equal opportunity bigot. Uh, he had horrible things to say about white people, Jewish people, Asian people, Hispanic people, even other black people. Um, and yet, you know, I think pretty conspicuously, a lot of those details were left out in much of the mainstream coverage of the shooting. The nearly two thousand word profile of James. In the uh, in the New York Times, just for example, which doesn't mention that he's black at all, um, doesn't mention you know the, the character of his of his uh, bigoted views, just that he happens to have bigoted views, and I think would leave many readers with the impression that he was another white nationalist shooter. Um, and you see this trend, this pattern across media coverage in general that they were they are uh, very wary of acknowledging uh, that James is black. Yeah, uh, and what are the chances if it's a white uh, man who shoots black people and they find video of him uh, saying how much he hates black people, the chances of that lasting, uh, taking more than a paragraph or maybe even a sentence to mention that he's white? Yeah, well, so so the, the piece which you alluded, um, with the help of the Washington Free Beacon, my former colleagues, uh, we put together a data set of over 1,100 articles from six major newspapers uh, over the past two years covering uh, coverage of homicides. What we were looking for was, A, if an article mentions the race of an offender, where in the article does it get mentioned? And B, does the article mention the race of the offender? And if not, can we figure out what the offender's race was based on mugshots or other information, um, which we did? Uh, and, you know, I think the, the disparities are pretty stark. Um, white offenders, their race is mentioned overwhelmingly in the first 20% of the article, Black offenders, their race is mentioned towards the last fifth of the article when it's mentioned at all. And indeed, articles are much less likely to mention black offenders' race or Hispanic offenders' race than they are to mention white offenders' race. Uh, the ballpark is between 20 and 25 percent of articles will, estimate, will reference a white offender's race, uh, whereas black offenders, something like 5 to 6 percent. Uh, lower rates for Hispanics, although there are just two articles about non-black, non-white shootings, not killings in general. Um, so you know those are those are pretty stark disparities. Even if you omit sort of the highest profile white killings, uh, white shootings shooting committed by white offenders, um, your your uh, the guys who killed Matt Arbery, uh, Derek Chauvin. Um, even if you omit those, there's still a massive gap between how often white offenders' race gets mentioned, how often black offenders' race gets mentioned. And um, what about the um, the how quickly the the story seems to disappear? Uh, a classic example is the the story of the the black man who drove the SUV into the Christmas parade in Michigan, um, ran over kids waiting for Santa Claus, and uh, 
that that they were white uh, people who he ran over, and he's a black man. Uh, that story seemed to be gone within about three or four days, where anybody met. And and if it would have been a a, a white guy running into a, a parade of black people, uh, the president would have shown up there probably the next day. Yeah, well, and you know, I've I've done a little bit. Of, this didn't get touched on in the piece that you alluded to. I've done a little bit of work on this previously for the Free Beacon. We looked at the durability of references to the shooting in Atlanta at a at a spa. Uh, which was sort of framed as a hate crime, although it's a question whether it was actually a hate crime, um, compared to uh, both uh, around the same time there was a mass shooting in Colorado uh, where the offender was uh, was Arab, and also another uh, a car attack on Capitol Hill where I believe the offender was black. Um, and indeed, the, the, the story of the white offender is more durable, lasts longer in both print and uh, and television media coverage. Um, and so, you know, I think I, I think there's some credibility to that theory. And you look, I, it, it, it comes down to uh, many of these newsrooms, many of these outlets say we want to focus on these issues of racial justice. We have a set of narratives that we think are important to emphasize. And in so doing, you know, there's, there's sort of the circular logic to it. They say we gotta, we're going to highlight these stories because these narratives are important to emphasize. And then why do we think the narratives are important to emphasize? Well, look at all these terrible stories that we're highlighting. Yeah, yeah, and and how did this all change uh, after the George Floyd uh, story? Yeah, so I look in my uh, my analysis at the frequency with which race gets offended, it gets mentioned in articles. Um, and prior to George Floyd, you know, you see, you see, there's a gap. Whites get mentioned more frequently than blacks, but it's uh, it's not, it's 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 a, it's there, but it really explodes after after George Floyd uh, is murdered. There's a decline in the frequency of mentioning black offenders' race, uh, and then there's a dramatic increase in the frequency of mentioning white offenders' race. And, you know, I, that could be coincidence. Um, you can't infer causality just from those data alone. What you can say is lots of newsrooms committed themselves to sort of emphasizing racial justice, quote-unquote, in their, in their coverage of a variety of issues, including crime. They took down mugshot galleries. Uh, they changed the way that they talked about criminals, all explicitly because they believed that that reinforces, you know, false racial bias. Uh, and so it, 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 is, it is, I think, a plausible story that they continue to downplay black offenders' race and played up white offenders' race in the name of, uh, as, as part of this project, which they have admitted to engaging in. We're talking to uh, Charles Fane Lehman. He wrote this piece at the Washington Free Beacon. He's uh, he's now a uh, uh, he now works for the um, the, the City Journal. Um, I, I I'm just looking here at your piece here. So you mentioned the difference in in George Floyd and the numbers you have here are pretty stunning. Actually, um, uh, it's it, it says here. Uh, before May of 2020, papers were roughly twice as likely to mention the race of a white uh, 13% uh, stories versus black 7%. After May of 2020, the numbers were 28% and 4%. That's a 7 to 1 ratio. I mean, that's not a small uh, disparity there, as you said. That's, uh, that, that's, that has to be willful, doesn't it, to have, to have that kind of a – it's not an accident. It's just it, it has to be intentional. Well, yeah, and you know, I, it's it's again, it's hard to say from that alone. Maybe you know, you don't, you wouldn't want the offender's race to manage in a hundred percent of stories. Sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it's not. Uh, could be random. That's possible. That you know, white offender's race became more salient for reasons totally unrelated to the newsroom's preference uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death. But it sure does seem unlikely. It sure does seem like. Uh, there was a, there was a, you know, the the quote unquote racial reckoning, the the nationwide engagement with sort of the the latest in what we now talk about as critical race theory, um, did not skip over newsrooms. That there was a, a, a deliberate sense in newsrooms that like that 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 the, the truth, the felt truth of these ideas needed to be put in front of uh, uh, facts. Um, and and I think you see that playing out in the data. That that the question is, you know, should we should we mention that this offender is black? No. Should we mention this offender is white? Yes. Why? Well, because we all know that the real problem is white supremacist crime. We all know that talking of black murders is just a is 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 a racist trope. And so we shouldn't reinforce those ideas. We already know that this is what's true. Uh, and so we can we should we should admit facts that are inconvenient to that truth. And, and I mean, I know you don't know the you don't know the motivation for this. 
Uh, so there's no way of knowing, but it, it, if they're doing it to uh, spare the feelings of black people and to make them not feel bad about the number of crimes being uh, committed by black people, they're really not helping, are they, by, by well, ignoring that? That's just doing the opposite, it would seem to me. Well, I, you know, I think it, there, there are two things there, right? One is, um, I think it is more likely the case that the, the explanation is that the news coverage propagates false beliefs that black people are all criminals, all potential murderers. And, you know, it's, it's not a reasonable critique to say that, you know, media's got to be smart about not perpetuating stereotypes. Those can be damaging. Those can be bad. But it sort of seems like you swing in the opposite direction of not mentioning race ever at all. Uh, you're doing you're doing a disservice to your readership. A, you're doing a disservice to your readership in general on the basis of truth. And thing two is, per your point, uh, if you are if you are downplaying race in stories, you are downplaying because most homicides are intraracial, because most homicides are committed uh, against people of the same race. You are downplaying stories in which black people are being killed. Right? The the dramatic homicide increase in 2020 was disproportionately borne by. Uh, by black victims, like the the largest increase relative to baseline was among black, was in was among black people among black communities. And so, when you want to avoid telling stories about black murderers, you're defending black murderers at the cost of their victims who are also black. Yeah, and 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 stereotypes are created in some in, in some cases because of people being observant or, or if. If you are watching the news every day in your city uh, and here in Pittsburgh, if time after time the story of a shooting involves two young black men or, or more than two young black men, as this last incident did, uh, you're supposed to feel guilty about uh, – I guess you are – about a, a, a drawing some conclusion from that, that the problem seems to be mostly a black problem here in Pittsburgh – uh, and and so is it are, are you, is it a, a willful attempt by the media? I'm not not just Pittsburgh, but everywhere to not th- have that be the case. Well, and what what, what I would underscore for your listener two things. First is what I underscore for your listeners is it isn't even necessarily a black problem. The if you're walking down the street and you see a black person, the overwhelming probability is that that person's not committing a crime, right. has not committed a crime, so they're not going to commit a crime against you. It's a highly concentrated problem. A violence in America, highly, it's, you know, if you, if you look at city after city, uh, a very small fraction of the population commits the overwhelming share of violent crimes. Is that population disproportionately black? Yeah, and you can have a long conversation about why that is, but I think it's important that, you know, when the media thinks about this stuff in terms of exclusively race, they're really missing this dimension of, yes, there's a correlation with race, but what really matters is this high concentration of violence in places and people, um, and that that is, that you know, that, that that representing that is what really matters. Point, but point two is like, yeah, I, I, I think by downplaying this, by there's, there's a belief that the media gets to construct reality, that the way that we talk about things, the words that we use, is really what determines how the world actually is. And so if we just don't talk about crime, maybe crime will be less of an issue. And it turns out that when you do that, you don't actually make crime go away. You just pay less attention to it. It becomes less of a salient political issue, and consequently it gets less attention and less resources. Um, in my mind, you know, people people being concerned about crime is a good way to address crime. And the media says no. If we 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 don't want to we we don't want to get in the way of the great progress we've made on criminal justice reform in this country. Uh, we need to just talk as little about crime as possible. And it's like, no, you're just lying to people, and they know you're lying to them. Yeah, we're talking to uh, Charles Fain Lehman. He's a uh, contributing editor at uh, City Journal, and also he wrote this piece for the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, and in your piece. Uh, you write the Inquirer. I guess that's the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, stopped publishing mugshot galleries in part because two Florida news- newspapers wrote they quote may have reinforced negative stereotypes, which is what we were just talking about here. But others committed to overhauling their language, substituting phrases like "formerly incarcerated person" for "felon" to respond to what the Pointner Institute described as a link between reporting on crime and race and racism. So they're they're overhauling their language, and they don't want to use the word felon anymore. No, they don't want to use the word felon. They don't want to use uh, the AP style book, which is a standard reference for journalists across the country. So you shouldn't use the word riot because riot has racial connotations. So the response is sometimes things are riots, but yeah. it's not just black yeah. people rioting or white people rioting. It's still a riot. 
um, you know, I'm 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 from Pittsburgh. Eh, sometimes Steelers win, people riot a little bit. The yeah. guys are rioting are all different races. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I I I know how that goes. Uh, but I think I think uh, the right there's there's again there's this sense that language is is really determinative of politics. That like the the world is is shaped by primarily how the media structures our impressions. And, 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 and I think that, you know, this, this irrigates the media, this role of like determiner of truth that is very dangerous. It's both false and dangerous. Um, yep. it's, it's, it's false as far as like, that's not how the world works. And it's dangerous as far as it, it grants a great perception of power to people who shouldn't have that perception of their own power. Um, and who feel empowered to lie to people or to, or to align information that doesn't serve their, their political purposes. Um, so yeah, you know, I think I, you're, you're talking about we should get rid of mugshots. We should we should use person-first languages language, um, and the the thought there is that it's, it's dehumanizing to call somebody a fella. And the response is, uh, I don't really think that's what's dehumanizing about prison, but okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I think there's this fixation on the words that we use that that is that is problematic across the board. But here it's problematic because it strives to underplay the significance of crime, how bad crime is, and how it har- who it harms. I have uh, less than a minute here to go, Charles. I just wanted to ask you about moral clarity over objectivity. Objectivity seems to me to be a pretty important thing in journalism. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, well, and th- th- this is a this is a talking lo- a talking point in the in the wake of the of the quote unquote racial reckoning. We need journalists need to they need to get off the sidelines. They need to be pro democracy. They need to have moral clarity, not focus on objectivity or hearing both sides. What this means in reality is. Mostly, journalists need to prosecute the agenda of the Democratic Party. That's like the the long and the short of it. Um, and and you know, I think I, I think that they look for they look for coded ways to appear facially neutral without actually being neutral and su- politically neutral and substance. That's problematic because again, you know, journalists journalists do shape our perception of reality. They do have the capacity to hide things from us, and when they do that. Uh, there are there are I think major major negative consequences for the public's understanding what's going on in our country. Hey, uh, Charles, I'm out of time. I really appreciate you coming on. The uh, headline for the story is, Yes, the Media Bury the Race of Murderers If They're Not White. And it's at the uh, Washington Free Beacon. You can find it at freebeacon.com. Thanks, Charles. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that's Charles Fain, Lehman. We'll be right back. When it's time to replace your roof, siding, gutters, and downspouts, entry doors, and, of course, windows, you can count on Windows R Us, the area's premier exterior replacement company. This is John Steigerwald. With over 50 years' experience in the home remodeling industry, Windows R Us offers repair and replacement for all your exterior home projects. Why pay double with some other companies? Windows R Us will always give you the best price on the best in-class products, backed by the best warranties in the industry, all with zero sales pressure. And speaking of zero... Right now, get zero interest financing for 12 months and no processing fee with prices set to increase on all exterior products. Lock in your quote today. Schedule a free estimate and inspection today at windowsarustpittsburgh.com. You've tried the rest, now try the best. windowsarustpittsburgh.com. Make a difference in your life that impacts you for years to come by traveling to Israel this year. Sign up today for the thrill and excitement of visiting the Holy Land this November with nationally syndicated media host Dr. Sebastian Gorka and renowned author and filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. Visit StandWithIsraelTour.com for details and to register. On the tour, you'll step into history with mouth-watering cuisine, picturesque scenes and magnificent people while visiting over 40 iconic sites and sacred places you've only read and heard about for years. Pray at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, float in the mineral-rich Dead Sea, and take a boat onto the middle of the Sea of Galilee as you experience something transforming in your life. Call 855-565-5519 to reserve your spot. Again, visit StandWithIsraelTour.com to book your trip today. Patrick was way behind on his IRS taxes. I was in way over my head. The total amount ended up being somewhere just over $30,000. $30,000. Then the IRS came to collect. 
started getting letter after letter. A lien had been filed against me. They were going to basically like hang me completely out to dry. He had to do something. That's when I reached out to Optima Tax Relief. Patrick's life quickly got a lot easier. It was very easy. Pretty much hands off, you know. They picked up the ball and ran with it. And how'd it go? I couldn't believe it. I had to ask like two or three times. I saved an incredible amount of money. How does Patrick feel about Optima? Couldn't be happier. They definitely helped me. Optima Tax Relief, the best place to call. They're the best in the business. Do what Patrick did and call Optima Tax Relief for a free consultation. Call 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. Optima Tax Relief. Testimonial from an actual client. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. The John Steigerwall Show. AM 1250, The Answer. Well, we told you at the beginning about uh, the Easter Bunny. How about this? This is a new uh, breaking news. A new report from an inside source at the White House has confirmed that Barack Obama has been running the Biden administration from inside an Easter Bunny costume for the past two years. Quote, oh, yeah, Barry's been climbing into that bunny suit and orchestrating the whole thing all along. Every policy position, every executive order, all the mandates, the foreign wars, all of that was from the bunny. According to the source, the White House gathers in the Situation Room every morning to hear from the Easter Bunny and get their marching orders. Quote, the bunny was the only one that could keep Biden's attention. He'd start nodding off at all the officials and executives trying to explain simple concepts to him, but the bunny always got him clapping and cheering. During different holidays, Obama sometimes switches into different costumes, such as during Christmas time, when he gives orders to the Biden White House dressed as Black Santa Claus, and on President's Day when he shows up as Black George Washington. We have a lot of fun here, said the source. It's not all serious business, crises and wars. Well, that's most of it, but we have to let our hair down once in a while. At publishing time, Obama had distracted Biden by telling him he'd hidden a golden egg somewhere on the White House lawn while Obama started three new wars in the Middle East. That's the breaking news. You heard it here first. And, of course, who else would that be from except the Babylon Bee? You can find him at BabylonBee.com. They got kicked off Twitter. And one of the that's a terrible uh, absence, not having him there. But there you have it, BabylonB.com. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye. The John Staggerwald Show is a production of the Answer Pittsburgh and Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.